Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Thank you for agreeing to do this interview. I know it's the first in-depth one you've granted in many years. Well, I didn't expect it to touch so many vulnerable parts of myself. I mean, we're walking out into the horrible, dark, open spaces of my heart. Spaces that you know, cry out to be filled with love and other people. But instead, I only really see myself as a little girl, you know, a featureless lonely child chasing a hoop as it rolls down desolate alleyways in a shadowy landscape. Actually, I haven't asked you a question yet. I know, but I'm just so aware of it all. You're trying to find things out about me and then turn them into words, which will be printed with ink on paper made from trees slashed by saws in commercial forests in Georgia and then the pages will be stapled. Oh, God, the tiny aluminum crab seizing my life in its tiny pincers. And then the magazine sits in a newsstand run by a Ukrainian man who left his family behind and came here promising to send money back, but he never did. And here comes a customer, a woman who just failed her CPA exam and standing there in cheap boots from... Okay, stop. Seriously, stop. You have to quiet down your monkey mind. Did you say monkey? That's my trigger word. My publicist was supposed to tell you that. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm turning off the tape recorder now. <laughs> no, no, keep this. This is me, the real me. Let's keep talking while everybody else listens to the nose. And now he spilled his guts in his bacon aficionado profile. Colin Mackin. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize Bacon Aficionado, that they went so deep. I just thought I was going to be talking about my relationship to Bacon. Uh, all right. Well, as you heard of that, uh, the the uh, intro kind of sets up two different things that we're going to be talking about today. One of them is the movie The End of the Tour, which is, in fact, about this invasive uh, interview, an attempt by a journalist named David Lipsky uh, to interview David Foster Wallace right at the end of his book tour on behalf of Infinite Just. Uh, that was the novel, this tour de force novel that made David Lipsky and everybody else from Wallace's generational cohort feel as though they were destined to compete at best for second place for the rest of their lives. And so th there are all these layers to this interview, and we'll be talking about all the layers to the interview. Some of it is that invasiveness that Jan Janet Malcolm talks about and her book, The Journalist and the Murderer. Some of it is the competition that Lipsky feels. Uh, some of it is the revelation of how completely vulnerable David Foster Wallace really is and what that winds up meaning or not meaning to David Lipsky. Anyway, we'll be talking about this remarkable movie and uh, two pretty remarkable performances by Jesse Eisenberg and Jason Siegel. But we'll also be talking about a, a profile we read that was kind of startlingly similar in a lot of ways. It's a profile by a writer named Joe Lovell. He is pro profiling Stephen Colbert, and he kind of gets underneath whatever mask Stephen Colbert ever wears for his comedy. And 
meets something resembling the real guy. And the, the parallels just kind of shocked all of us, I think. Uh, towards the end, we're going to try to talk about the, the Ashley Madison data dump, what it means. We might be focusing a little bit a little bit on the Duggar family, but there's uh, so, so many ways that we could kind of unscrew that particular jar of the Ashley Madison one, I mean, and dump its contents out onto the airwaves. So that's all coming, plus endorsements. Let me mention who's here from Trinity College, Professor Irene Papoulis from The Cut, an online magazine dedicated to the increasingly grumpy uh, generational cohort of young Kineticutions, um, young adult Kineticutions, uh, Teresa Kramer, and uh, from Trinity Cine Studio, James Hanley. So I, we're going to start with the end of the tour. We all saw this movie. By the way, if you did too, you can call in at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I'm really interested to hear what you all thought about the movie. We didn't share too much about it uh, as we emailed back and forth in terms of what our reactions are. Uh, maybe we should start with the guy who shows movies for a living. Uh, <laughs> so I thought it was really interesting, um, actually, that um, uh, we actually didn't share ideas, which to me is kind of um, – uh, I, I I very much like to see a movie, for example, without knowing too much in advance. I mm -hmm. love the fact that I went to see this without re having read any reviews, or um, and I really I, I loved the movie. I thought it was extraordinary. Um, if nothing, uh, right? I realized after it was over, wow, this is amazing! A, a movie that was all talk, and mm -hmm. it was actually about ideas, and it was um, it was sort of actually, my, my junk food with Andre, yeah. uh, uh, right? <laughs> um, but. It's kind of interesting not to talk about the movie for a while and think about it. That um, I uh, personally have found, uh, like uh, David Foster Wallace, intrigues me, and I always find myself picking up his books and I read part of it, and I find that the density of it is very intimidating to me. And so I find I can't sit there and sort of feel that I've got to sit continue this. Like when I come back home, I find myself picking up something, then coming back to it, then coming back to it. And the film is kind of interesting because it gets that about the sort of episodic nature of what's going on in his mind. And I think there's a real contrast um, in the characters. Jesse Eisenberg has this sort of intense analytic quality that is constantly probing and then is sort of defeated by a much larger sort of sense of um, sort of a, almost amorphic uh, 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 explanation of of what David Foster Wallace is seeing. It's like uh, trying to be into that Jesse Eisenberg is a sort of sharp intellectual approach to that, but David Foster Wallace is not that intellectual approach. And I'll get back to what I thought, you know, having read the, the uh, Stephen Colbert profile afterwards, that, which was very informative. But it was a really absorbing film and uh, makes me want to see it again and, and really sort of get a sense of the characters, uh, real depth to characters, which was something very special to me. Yeah, I, uh, Teresa, I don't know. I mean, I almost just want to hear each of you just give your little take on it because this movie can mean so much. Oh, I forget the list of the. Could somebody give me the list of the clips? We have clips, but I forget to bring the list in. Somebody will bring it to me. But so we do have clips uh, from the movie. But um, yeah, maybe just the best thing to do is to each. I mean, you can see this movie so many different ways. And I have to say that I was sitting in the movie theater when it ended, thinking I was having this kind of Truman Show mo moment, thinking, 
would, did they just make this movie for me? Because this is like everything I think about all the time. Um, so then I asked the people sitting behind me if they liked it, and they did too. Uh, so I, I felt a little bit better about that. But yeah, go ahead. That's funny you say that because I sort of it's not. I did like the movie. I liked it quite a bit. But part of the thing, you know, when we started talking about going to see this movie, sort of the first thing I said was that I have not read Infinite Jest and do not plan to because I just I. Because I sort of feel the opposite way of what um, you just said, Colin, in that I'm like, this is not made for me. This is not what I think about. I don't have these particular worries, and so I don't, I don't relate to it very well. But the movie made – but that was sort of a preconceived notion I had going into the movie that this was a – as I referred to them in our emails, the uber-literary bro writers um, that I just don't relate to very well. But – of those writers, I feel like David Foster Wallace is the most likable, the most human, the most. Um, yeah, and when just, I could you just say what you don't, why you don't relate to them? What yeah. So part of it is I think there's just this distinct maleness to it that ha- there are these worries about like oh I accomplished this great thing and that's still not enough for me and I personally don't have that just because mm-hmm. I'm like oh I don't want to be a CEO of a company I just want to like mm-hmm. hang out with my dog so I don't really <laughs> I don't necessarily share a lot of the sort of However, but what I will say is that in David Foster Wallace's essays, I find myself relating to him much better than say because, you know, like I read Consider the Lobster this week, which is just mm-hmm. about a lobster festival and the horrible things we do to lobster. And I was like, yeah, I'm on board with you with this or the cruise one where I'm like, yeah, I hate cruises, too. They're awful. And I could relate to him on that basis. And in the movie, you see sort of and one of the other things I don't like, and I've said this to Colin before about say Jonathan Franzen is that he comes across as really disliking the people he's writing about and um, I don't get that feeling from David Foster Wallace he might be critiquing society but he loves the people and I think that came through in the movie very well. All right. Before we hear from Irene, uh, let me just play a little clip from the movie that sums up a couple of things that uh, James uh, talked about and that Teresa talked about. In the case of James, you're going to hear in this clip um, the, the way in which David Foster Wallace, he kind of positions himself, which he also does in his prose. On the one hand, he's written this you know lapidary prose that is also just sort of epic in its reach. Uh, but there's something kind of um, – willingly and willfully lowbrow about him and he he's not as analytical as the Jesse Eisenberg character and he's you know he says his the major addiction of his life has been television um and I think you can also hear in this so you can hear a little bit of the lowbrow uh in him and maybe a little bit of the low bro uh in him that uh that Teresa talks about too this is him talking about uh well, he's getting a question from Jesse Eisenberg about why there's an Alanis Morissette poster in his apartment can you do me a favor? Yes. Could you tell me about that poster over there? Alanis? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm susceptible like everybody else. What? I mean, she's pretty, all right, but it is like she is pretty. the only thing in there. She's pretty in a very sloppy, very human way. Huh. You know, she's got this, like, squeaky, orgasmic quality to her voice. Here's what it is. A lot of women in magazines are pretty in a way that is not erotic because they don't look like anybody that you know. (laughs) True. Yeah, like you can't imagine them putting a quarter in a parking meter or like eating a bologna sandwich. Whereas Alanis Morissette, I can and have imagined her just like chowing down on a bologna sandwich. (laughs) I find her absolutely riveting. 
Uh, I've listened to that clip a number of times, and of course, the, the way it finishes, I can and have imagined Alanis Morrison <laughs> chowing down on a bologna sandwich. Anyway, Irene, it's your turn. Yeah, who who puts squeaky and orgasmic in the in the same sentence and makes it work? Mm. You know, um, uh, you know. I think it's interesting because I, um, I, yeah, I really like the movie too, uh, and I I think part probably for reasons similar to why Colin liked it in the sense that which is kind of funny since I'm a woman, but I sort of felt like I could completely. I could just relate to both of them in, in really strongly because, and for David Foster Wallace, it's the sort of morality. So it's not highbrow or lowbrow. It's just like trying, trying to, trying to be morally right and feeling like, and, and struggling with that and feeling like, I mean, Colbert seems to have that too, you know? And, and I think that's why I feel like that's why people love him so much. It's because he's trying harder than we are to be morally right. And and I thought that came across in a really interesting way, just the struggle of of that and also the struggle of trying to understand someone like that. So for the David, the other David, trying to understand, you know, and grasp who David Foster Wallace is and all his complexity and feeling like he knew that he wasn't as good. And, you know, that whole story is very interesting. I mean, for me, the, the only thing that really bothered me about the movie was that we didn't see the reading. You know, right. He gave a reading and they, you know, and then they just cut to the end. He, you know, he started. Why did they do that? I wonder. Well, you know, that was brought up by America's greatest living film critic, uh, David Edelstein, who was here on the nose last week. But at the end of his review, he says that he says that's the one thing that's missing from this movie. And I've heard other real Wallaceites say that, that you know, the writing just isn't there. If there's if there's some way to convey the writing, they ought to do it. Um, you should. I would recommend Edelstein's review too, because it ends with a little piece of gossip uh, about Elizabeth Wurzel and David Foster Wallace at uh, at one of these readings for Infinite Jest. But anyway, um, I wonder is there a um, is there like a copyright issue because the state is not on board? So uh, that could have been. Actually, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. You might be right yeah. about that. Oh, um, yeah. The uh, yep. Actually, somebody is uh, texting me. I assume that's Alex who's doing that. Actually, they didn't have the rights to Wallace's writing. Wallace's states. Uh, mm-hmm. Wallace's estate did not like the movie. So, um, to me, first of all, I mean, I wanted to say a little bit about this from my own perspective too, um, having been occasionally interviewed, but more often writing profiles of people. And one of the things I thought about while watching this was um, I did a profile of a band, uh, and they had just been signed to their first – this is kind of like an almost famous thing. you know. They, they'd just been signed to their uh, first big label contract, and they were very familial in, in their behavior and a little bit – they were constantly sort of closing ranks uh, uh, to keep me out and then opening back up because they really wanted me to come in, much the way you see in this movie, right? You know, Wallace is very ambivalent about – you know, what does he want to say? What does he want to have said? It's such an incredibly difficult thing, too. If you can imagine, we all live our lives not all that self-consciously, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not certainly, what does Wallace say, at the raped by psychic Bedouins <laughs> level of self-consciousness. So it's, if somebody asks you to explain your life, what you're doing and everything, it's pretty hard, actually. It's a pretty hard thing to do. Anyway, I was working with this rock band, and I was being the Jesse Eisenberg guy. And, um, and I, this involved just sort of hanging around and around and around waiting for them to kind of forget who I was uh, and at least forget what mission I was on. And I was like the roadie at times. I would help them load equipment into gigs and stuff. Just to, and, and anyway, eventually I wrote the piece. And then I – oh, here's the other part of it. So right before this process was ending, 
I was in the green room with them before a gig, and they had would have these little meetings, and they clearly had had a little meeting about me, and they said, you know, Colin, we decided we really like you, and that we want to be friends with you, and that you know when this thing is over, you know, and everything, you know, we want to just go on, you know, being friends the way we have and stuff. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, yeah, you probably are not going to want to do that, <laughs> not because I didn't like them or anything like that, but because this process is so intensely violating, uh, and. And because the way that I see you is never the way you think of yourself. So uh, um, You mean after they read the article they wouldn't want to? Yeah, they they wouldn't want to, yeah. yeah. And so when the article uh, ran, it ran as a cover piece uh, and uh, and I didn't hear from them and I didn't hear from them and I didn't hear from them. And then they were playing a gig down here and they said, you know, we want want you to come and see us. Uh, This is after weeks of silence. And I ran into the lead guitarist in the hallway and he said to me, you know, that article was the truest – a thing that's ever been written about us and as such the hardest to read um, and we didn't become friends <laughs> you know, because I mean and I think this movie really gets at that that whole I, Janet I mean, Malcolm thing to- yeah. totally I agree with that I think that's the core of the uh, of, of uh, Jesse Eisenberg's acting in this film too he gets that about David Lipsky that it's this, this this extreme tension, really, that he's trying to get David Foster Wallace to go to a place where he doesn't really want to go. And um, David Foster Wallace is constantly emitting signs that he wants him to be a friend mm-hmm. or to to actually establish friendship in order to be able to tell the true story. Is it uh, impossible to be friends with someone who's writing a profile of you, I wonder? You know, well, that's I mean, a, that's that's at the core, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I think that, it, that that I would say yes. I mean, because if you are in that, if if you establish that kind of thing, and 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 I think the dogs are sort of the symbol of that in the movie. You know that that David Foster Wallace's dogs, you know, and the the connection that he's trying to make with the dogs and Jesse Eisenberg, and Jesse Eisenberg is acting distant from the dogs. You know, and mm-hmm. the dogs. He 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 says, he said, "Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, okay," <laughs> and he says, "Leave the door open," you know, so the dogs can wander around, and it's like. If if you don't leave the door open, you're not going to be friends with me kind of thing. And and it gets to the core of that. And one of the interesting things to me further than that, too, is that David Lipsky actually, I guess the article was never published in Rolling Stone. Right. And he wrote a book. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking at the title of that again. Uh, Although, of course, you end up being yourself, mm. which is kind of an interesting title if you really think about that. Um, that uh, it seemed like David Lipsky, the real David Lipsky, um, really understood the dilemma that he was at when he was trying to contact this person because David Foster Wallace is like this person who it's almost like he's a hyper-conscious person mm-hmm. that gets across in the movie that there are so many things that he's like going from one thing to another and connecting them on a level that is incredibly complex. And David Lipsky, uh, the, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character, is trying all the time to somehow distill it. Um, actually, let's hear another clip where um, uh, this whole this whole relationship is exp- uh, explored. Hold on to your thought for, for ter- uh, Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Wolfie, this will be the, kind of the third clip on your list, the I don't even know uh, clip. This is, this is where they're kind of talking out this exact question about what is this relationship. Uh, and I think we start with Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace. You know what I would love to do, man? I would love to do a profile on one of you guys who's doing a profile on me. Mm. That is interesting. Or is that too pomo and cute? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe for Rolling Stone. but It would yeah. be interesting, though. You think? Uh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> What's wrong? It's just you're going to go back to New York and, like, sit at your desk and shape this thing however you want. And that, I mean, to me, it's just extremely disturbing. <laughs> Why is it disturbing? Because I think I would like to shape the impression of me that's coming across. I see. Yeah. I, I, I don't even know if I like you yet. 
so nervous about whether you like me. So, um, Teresa, one of the things I found myself, maybe because I saw myself mm-hmm. cringing at, at the Jesse Eisenberg depiction of David Lipsky, mm-hmm. and I don't want to give this scene away too much, but there's a scene near the end where there's an almost a ransacking mm-hmm. uh, of David Foster Wallace's life that happens, and it happens pretty remorselessly on the part of, of David Lipsky or Jesse Eisenberg after they've been through a bunch of iterations of their relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. things have kind of broken down and then been reassembled in a much more interesting and potentially intimate and genuine way. And once again, there's like, you know, violation after violation going on. I mean, I don't know. Did, you, did it strike you the same way or did you just sort of see uh, David Lipsky as on a defensible quest? He's got a job. He's got to do it. It's funny. It struck me more as silly because I was thinking you've been in this man's house for like, I mean, obviously they left and they came back, but he's probably been in this guy's house for a good 24 hours collectively and like you haven't just jotted notes down this entire time about the room you were in or whatever you saw what I was horrified by was the earlier scene where he's in the bathroom and he goes through his His cabinet (laughs) because I was like oh you're not going to see anything out and about in someone's house like you know I wouldn't leave I wouldn't leave anything I didn't want a reporter to see out in my house generally Mm -hmm. but I would not expect that he would like start going through drawers or you know, into my medicine cabinet. And what if he had found something in his medicine cabinet? Because actually watching it, knowing the history of David Foster Wallace, I thought he was going to find like a vial of medication for depression. But I think and I I, I was like, what would you print that? That's a that's a horrific thing to do. I think this sort of goes back to James's point. I mean, the house is there's a lot of symbology going on here you know, in this movie. And so just in the sense that the dogs are this sort of weird connection, this this kind of, um, I don't even really know, know what to call it, but kind of a, a placeholder for a certain part of David Foster Wallace, the you know, innocent, trusting relationship he wants to have with everybody. The house is, you know, I mean, first of all, well, but he people don't like let you he, be in their house. It just <laughs> seems like from the beginning that he doesn't trust this guy. Right. So that, you know, so it seems to me, you know, he's very guard. He's guarded, but he lets that guard down a lot because he just can't help himself. But, and, you're right, because that's mm-hmm. part of what he struggles with is mm-hmm. the, the desire to, you know, like the, the ambition and also the fear of his own ambition or the, or mm-hmm. the questioning, the constant, constant questioning well, of his what, own ambition. One of the things I thought of before when James was speaking was in, did anyone else listen to the Slate podcast about Infinite Jest? No. No, I want to read it first. Someone said... Um, that they had seen a syllabus of, of from one of David Foster Wallace's class and that everything was broken down in such excruciating detail to the point of like what it means if you get this grade and you should come see me if you do this and this is why we're reading this. And she's like, and I don't know how someone goes through life like this because this is obviously how he sees the world, yeah. which is, I mean, that is what leads to anxiety and depression when you can't like just – Take something in and let it go, which he clearly cannot do. Especially if you're saying, "I just want to be real. I don't want to be faux. I want to be real. I want mm-hmm. to be." I mean, there, when I got home, I watched the um, Charlie Rose interview uh, with him that's online, and mm-hmm. he has the bandana. And it, it we was should really say that three of us today are wearing bandanas. We're <laughs> wearing shame, James. James. and it feels good. Right it feels good. He said <laughs> that it made him feel better. Um, and um, and at one point he he said something. He's talking to Charlie, and he says something like, "Well, you know, yeah, you're probably thinking that the reason I said this was this." because I, I was actually, you know, trying mm-hmm. to do this. And then Charlie, who's like looking just so smooth and dapper and the opposite of David Foster Wallace, just says, just be yourself. Don't yeah. worry about it. Just <laughs> be yourself, mm-hmm. you know. And it seems like that's exactly his struggle. That's why it's such a tragedy, you know, mm-hmm. because he, he wants more than anything to just be himself. But he can't with that. And there's so many people 
like that. Maybe we're all yeah, like no, that I, I on mean, some I level. Th- I think there are some people who are hyper aware who also have the capability of somehow placing things in areas where they can either mm-hmm. handle them or express them to others and come come away, if you like, more sane as a result of it. So that's why I think Stephen Colbert is, is, is he's a hyper aware person who sees every single detail. And you could see that if you can't process that information in some sort of fashion that you feel comfortable with, at some point that does lead to anxiety because it, there's this torrent of stuff. It's kind of like, you know, saving the newspapers because you might read the articles in the future because of a fear that you're missing something. But the real truth, of course, is that there is such an avalanche of information. There's no possibility you could do that. But if you're conscious of that and you're thinking about that as a failing, and David Foster Wallace's writing is filled with things like the the, the detail of observational writing is extraordinary that it makes you see a certain picture. But I always find when I'm reading that stuff thinking that, oh, my God, I'd go crazy if I was sort of trying to process all that at the same time. And I think that... Um, there's a consciousness of that in the character played out in the film that is really interesting that um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, uh, as David Lipsky, is trying all the time to somehow distill that and bring it to a place where he can somehow, in his head, write his article. And I think looking in the medicine cabinet actually is part of that because he he works for Rolling Stone. He knows the rumors about drug use, uh, not recreational drug use, as well as uh, possibly a, a antidepressants. And so I would think that's the first thing he would go to. Actually, would be to look in, in to 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 get some sort of inside information. And so he's trying to sort of fill that out. Yet at the same time, he's surrounded by this ever expanding universe of, of of David Foster Wallace himself trying to draw him into that. One of the things I, I kept wondering, because this never became a Rolling Stone article, is do we know why it didn't? Was it just too unruly for y- him to Jan, do anything with? Jan Winter sort of killed it, I think, before it even got written. Uh, Jan Winter, Winter uh, one of the things that in the movie that is not true uh, is the one thing that actually sort of looks like an old-fashioned, uh, you know, I guess it's sort of is it Mr. Deeds. It's one of those things where the reporter is, you got to let me do this article. Yeah. Come on, boss. You, is that, it, it's, it's like out of some, you know, movie of that era. And there's, there's something like that in this one. Is it Barbara Stanwyck who does that, I think? That's, I can't, I can't yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so there's this kind of Barbara Stanwyck moment where, where Jesse Eisenberg is saying, you got to let me do this. And it, tur- it turns out that Jan Wenner had actually seen just a picture of David Foster Wallace in one of these bandanas that we're all wearing and just said, he's one of us. Somebody go do a story about him. But yeah, I, don't, I think the whole thing. I just want to end this. I, I did have one little aperçu. It's a puny aperçu, but based on something that Teresa was saying, too. And this involves a slightly name-droppy story, and I apologize. But um, so, you know, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I'm keenly aware of from this movie and then, like, going back to David Foster Wallace is how much how centered inside his work is, right? He's an incredibly keen observer of the outside world, but it starts inside, and exactly. it's so much about the impact yeah. of what the outside world is doing to the inside. And he talks about that in the movie, but he's, it, that's so clear in his writing, too, that even though he, he sees everything, like he just sees the world in, in huge detail, it's all coming inside, and, and what's going on is inside. So his very close, or sort of close friend, Jonathan Franson, who wrote this also somewhat violating piece about him that involved bird watching and the suicide of David Foster Wallace and stuff like that. Um, I, I did a, 
um, a Connecticut forum with uh, Franson and John Irving and, and one other writer. And we were, during the intermission, we were in the green room, and John Irving's wife had terrible allergies, and I was explaining to her what a neti pot is, and uh, that maybe would help her allergies and stuff like that. And Franzen was sitting on the, on the floor across from us and with this little kind of Cheshire Caddy enigmatic smile that he has. And I looked over at him. I said, I don't want to see this turning up as some observed detail of life in this era, some idiot talking about nitty pots to somebody. Like, I don't want to be in, you know, I'll come and I'll find you if you do that to me. But, and that's the difference of Franson, right? That somehow or other, he really is looking out, and you feel much more the author's gaze on the social terrain of the moment, that it's, it, it isn't, that locus isn't so deep, deep inside the way that it is with, with Foster right. Wallace. And I think that's the reason why there's a great unhappiness in D- D- uh, David Foster Wallace, that, 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 that unhappiness comes from the fact that once it becomes internalized, you can't process it in the same way, I think. And so it becomes a source of anxiety in itself. And that shows, I think, in his writing. And I can see, you know, that, that I mean, just thinking in terms of being depressed, that that would be something that would amplify your sense of despair, perhaps. And, I, and also, I've been thinking that it's also that he wants you, to control it, too, yeah, because yeah. he exactly, wants to be able to say, exactly. I wish I yep. could write the... It's like one of my sisters once said to me, I don't want the rest of you talking about me at all. Right. And I said yeah. to her, you know, you just can't... You know, people are going to talk you about you. It's life. okay. Yeah. You can't help it. We have to take a little break here, so we'll have time for a little bit more about Stephen Colbert, maybe Ashley Madison, although our time is fleeting right now. Let's take that break. We'll talk about how you can have some of the same experiences that lead to unhappiness and convert them into joy if your name is Stephen Colbert. Brief interviews with hideous men, David Foster Wallace. Well, one of the truest uh, things that was said as we were preparing for this show this week was said by Teresa Kraber in an email when she said that you could take some of the quotes from the movie at the end of the tour and some of the quotes from the um, GQ profile. Uh, uh, by Joe Lavelle of uh, Stephen Colbert and mix them all up and it would be really hard to tell them apart uh, at a certain point. Um, uh, this uh, remarkable profile of Colbert does deal with some of the questions we were just asking about too, like wh- how do you say something in a profile that doesn't sound completely managed and real uh, and what happens when you start thinking about the fact that you're in a profile, someone's profiling you right now. Anyway, uh, so we get early on these, uh, this remarkable scene. Before long we were sitting there with a plate of roast chicken and several bottles of Cholula on the table between us, both of us rubbing tears from our eyes. The level of emotion you're getting from me right now, I'm not saying it's dishonest. This is Colbert talking. I'm just saying it's not normal. I'd really love to go to bed. I promise you I do not spend my time on the edge of tears. Uh, and then Lavelle wrote, and this time so much like David Lipsky, I've easily played the recording of that conversation a dozen times, only one of them in order to transcribe. And while we spent plenty of time talking about comedy and the conventions of late night and the sheer practical challenges of doing a show twice as long as his old one, the thing I've been thinking about the most since my time with Colbert is loss. And then we get this incredible profile. And I mean, most people know that, that Colbert suffered this just horrible loss when he was very, very young, 10 years old, I yeah. think, yeah. Uh, this plane crash that killed his father and his brother. Um, and But I don't th- – I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. I've just never seen – I mean, we've all watched a lot of Stephen Colbert. We've really not seen this person that we see here, right? I'll let you go first. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's interesting that the answer is, you know, his answer, his way. You mean when you said we've not seen that this person, you mean we've not seen the 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 one who had the tragic experience? 
Well, and, and and has then gone through all these different stages of it and, and has used drama and Stanislavski training and as a bridge to comedy uh, and, and that underneath this all there, there are these religious, very meditative things going on as he really looks at sort of how, how to get a handle on life. I, th- I think we've – I agree. I hadn't really seen that person until I read the interview. But at the same time, we've sensed that person and I think that's why we love him so much. Or at least that's why I do. You know, like the 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 um, review. What I wrote down about it. One of the one of the he, he the interviewer calls him one of the country's few public moral intellectuals, and he asks Stephen Colbert about it, and he says, "I do like thinking. If people perceive that as moral and being moral and public moral intellectual, then that's fine with me. You know. But there's some. I think it is a moral. There, there's some kind of moral joie de vivre that he has that just that 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 kind of gives us a sense of those experiences, even if we didn't necessarily know them explicitly. Hmm. Well, your reaction. I'm just I, going around the table again. I was thinking about, like, inter- why has he handled this so well? And I think part of it is I was thinking, well, here's someone who something actually happened to, right? David Foster Wallace was struggling with all these small daily things about life, but there was no, as far as I know... There no, must have been, though. The, yeah. was a trauma at some point, yeah. yeah. But so... I mean, is it just that Colbert was a essentially mentally healthy person to begin with and was able to cope with the trauma? And as opposed to David Foster Wallace, who was more vulnerable to, to something, uh, it, it, why does one why is one person able to turn it around and one's not? And yeah. my boyfriend actually works in human services. And, you know, I sort of understand all of this through his lens and. You know, we talk about this quite often, like what makes one person, you know, so many people he works with have had like terrible traumas. And and then you think, well, I know someone that happened to and they're fine. And you wonder, like, what makes one person OK and one not? Well, well he does say his mm-hmm. mother. Yes, yeah. his mother. But he, we also see we see so many different things, James. I mean, we see, in fact, that he was imbued with Catholicism at an early age. He has not renounced it. He has it for a long time. I think I posted on his uh, dressing room mirror that says joy is the proof of the existence of God or something along uh, those lines. Uh, and then we saw this incredible the, the fact that the wound happened so early. And he says at one point that, you know, people would try to punish him after that. You know, and he was, I was almost impossible to punish. I mean, what, what could you do to me? Uh, that would that would bother me. I got after, a bad know. grade. Yeah, I got a bad grade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we see all these things. And, but I think and then we see that he went to drama first and then found comedy. You know, he, he studied conventional, traditional acting. And I don't know what I saw emerging. And I'd be interested to hear your reaction to this is, you know, there's another similarity to David Foster Wallace and that these guys are both kind of sui generis. They're kind of one of a kind. You know, they were, uh, watching Colbert after this, and I watched the Apocalypse Dow video he did the, the day that all the systems were crashing, in which he just does this whole range of emotions and uses very florid literary language to do this comedy piece that involves him having a chicken named Vindaloo as his queen. And, you know, and I just thought there isn't another person alive who could pull this off because it's not just a comedy bit. It's so many other things. Right. I think one of the keys to this really is the fact that he he built his most of his career on playing a character which provided a way to sort of, I think, to to hone that ability. I mean, I think it's really fascinating, this idea about some people, you know, internalizing stuff and it's sort of like David Foster Wallace is writing about stuff. He's aware of stuff and he's reflecting on stuff and it's building up inside and it doesn't have this sort of expression in a way that, quote unquote, would be healthy. 
And so, you know, I think all of us know people who internalize things that, that they even may know that they internalize things and, and, and wish they didn't. But um, one of the things I thought was fascinating in that um, interview with uh, Stephen Colbert is that he openly dis- talks about how he just throws everything out there. Mm-hmm. He just is willing to be seen in every detail of his life and to be just to throw it out there. And, and, and it has a different quality then, an external quality perhaps. And by having this character that he's played for so long on TV that – He's able to also um, act out in a way that is sort of safe, if you like, and and not take some of the risks that would otherwise perhaps be encountered if you were actually not playing that character. And I think one of the most fascinating things about him is his transition now to a different role where it isn't really a role that he's going to be trying to do a – really recreate himself in a new way and – I how who knows what it is, what is it about a person who's able to sort of you know take all of that mess if you like all of those things that happen and then grow from that and but, be able to throw it out there and not care what people think about it. One thing that I thought was ama- was fascinating was the way because it's like it's not caring what people he likes to embrace the discomfort. So exactly. not care about well, what that, people are yeah. thinking about it, you right. know. And he did that in the correspondence dinner speech. Remember, you know, right. it was oh, just like George cringe. Bush is yeah. sitting there. Right, exactly. it makes you cringe. Yeah. Cringing, making but you he, cringe. And then he, he even exactly said he likes to be in an elevator and start singing really loud so that people get. And and then just to realize yeah. why does he like that? Because he can he realizes that he could live after doing it, you right. know. And so there's something about embrace. It's like, a reassurance. In a way, right. So I think it. You know, th- sort of psychologically, to do that is an alternative to trying to push it away. Like if you're trying to push away your discomfort, you're just going to be stuck with the discomfort. But if you sort of embrace the discomfort, is mm-hmm. that's what he's saying, and yeah. that's what improv yeah. did for him, allowed him to embrace being uncomfortable and sort of breathe it in. He said, you know, well, he, what and he says he actually can, is very David yeah. Foster Wallace sounding. He says, obviously, there's something defensive about it. What you're doing is sipping little bits of arsenic so that you can't be poisoned by the rest of your discomfort. You're rasputining your way through the rest of your life. I mean, that He's sounds a, like a immune. And he does that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of immunizing yourself in a way. And, you know, I, I, I thought it was really interesting in a sort of symbolic way. I always remember the reporter Eric Severide who would sometimes come on for a commentary who would say, um, you know, the, 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 the banks are failing. The, there's, there's a terrible storm in the northeast. There's a typhoon in the east. What does it all mean? And then he would sort of proceed with a commentary that really had no relation to that. Yet on that piece that, uh, the, that is linked to the article in GQ, um, uh, Stephen Colbert is, is doing that but sort of poking fun at himself for doing that mm-hmm. and getting a reassurance from it at the same time. All of those things are happening at the same time, which I find really it's stimulating and exciting to think that you can do that and not feel that, okay, everything is really going to hell, that you can actually put it in places that are externalized from yourself and that you can continue your life. We have a news flash from uh, Alex Dubin who thinks that Joe Lovell, the uh, author of this piece, uh, may have edited David Foster Wallace while at Harper's, uh, in which case we'll have a perfect umbilical cord running through there. You know, Teresa, at the end of this piece, um, you know, we get this sort of this real – 
intensification of that notion that that uh, Irene and James were talking about that you know that you can sort of use discomfort as a way of kind of mithridatically getting yourself ready for life but it, so at the end he talks about how he has decided to love and feel gratitude for like the worst things that have happened to him mm-hmm. and so the piece ends with Joel Lovell the, the the profile writer walking away with something that he's written down that where um, where Stephen Colbert has said to him you know at every moment uh, you know we can choose we can in our lives we can always choose whether to hate something or find some way to love it mm-hmm. and he says uh, his last line is at every moment we are volunteers uh, and level walk and I was just trying to think of another comedian I mean another comedy figure who could pull that off who you know has that much perspective I mean you watch like you know, David Steinberg and people like that they have these shows where comedians are interviewed they don't have profound things to say oh you I don't know about that. I mean, they may not say it the same way. I think. Um, you think Jerry Seinfeld could say something like no, that? No, but, Jer- <laughs> but Jerry Seinfeld's just talking about like what is up with that guy over yeah. there. Like he's not really talking about anything deep. But there are comedians who do that. So like Mark Maron just basically sits on a stool and rambles about his own inner world for mm-hmm. like an hour, and I can't pull anything and I don't think he does it quite as well as Stephen Colbert he's not quite as succinct as this and he also isn't winning the struggle as much he is much more anxious and much more depressed and um, he also attempts to interview other people I mean, if you were yes. doing David Foster Wallace the whole time, you go, you think I'm short? I think I look short. Yeah. <laughs> I the mean, two of them, David Foster would Wallace ne- wouldn't be able to say anything. <laughs> they would never have gotten out of their cycle of self-doubt. Um, Maybe is it, is it that David um, Stephen Colbert just isn't cynical? Yeah, the other ones are are cynical. I mean, I think what so. comedian right. isn't cynical? All right, speaking of cynical, we've got about three minutes uh, to uh, <laughs> talk about the most cynical thing that happened all week, which was <laughs> that the very cynical website Ashley Madison, which is for cheaters, a website that was set up for cheaters. You want to cheat? Uh, why go through all the trouble of arranging this on your own? We'll basically, you know, help you find somebody to cheat with. Hackers have dumped the contents of this website uh, onto the internet. Not easily readable by you or me, but you have to have sort of special kind of uh, skills. But the database, it's all going to get out. Out there, uh, the first victim, and that may not be the right word, is a member of the notorious Duggar family, who always seem to be getting in trouble. Uh, he turns out to have had an Ashley Madison account, um, and uh, has has been profusely apologizing, and not in certain ways. We, if we get, if we have time, we'll get to this. But um, you know, in a way. Um, uh, this seems like a David Foster, Jonathan Wallace, Jonathan Franzen kind of moment, right? Like this, the curtain has been tugged off something right. in a very, you know, appalling and difficult way. And I think that people who've been victims of their bile, the the, the Duggar family's bile, you know, people like uh, like uh, uh, the LGBT community, for example, um, uh, the the homophobia was virulent and bitter and and constant. And anybody, any most gay people I know were aware, were, were thinking, you know, someday the real story about these people is going to come out because why would they act this way? But I think that the whole nature of the Ashley Madison thing, the, the one thing that really makes me curious is that why would people think that when they enter all their information into a site <laughs> that is actually offering this service with credit cards, mm-hmm. with contact information and stuff and think that there wasn't some danger that at some point something wouldn't be done with that material. I mean, not just hacking, but I mean, how can you trust 
the Ashley Madison folks. How could you trust the woman the site hooks you up with? And right. like, I just went on a date with Josh Duggar because I would be like, oh, gross. And yeah. <laughs> go tell everybody. Yeah, there yeah. is some way in which this, I mean, Jennifer Weiner writing in the uh, New York Times op-ed page today kind of used this right as a symbol, not just of sort of the, the corruption and dereliction of American society, but just the, the, the rank stupidity yes. of not really knowing how to do something like this yeah, the correct said, way. If you want to cheat, cheat smart. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, I think it's amazing that, Stay local, that right? there's so much. Yeah, there's so much. Right. Just <laughs> don't put it in writing, whatever right. it is. You know, there's so much illicit sex going on in such an elaborate way. Mm-hmm. Thirty two million people signed on to that site. But you know, ha- I mean, I guess we knew that. But there's just something, you know, the elaborate uh, measures that people take to try to. Mm. To try to, you know, couldn't you just find someone at work or whatever? You know, no, it but has to be. But how would he, of all people, know how to do that, right? Like, he's never even been allowed to go on a date. Um, well, actually, really? I, I do have to wrap the this. Uh, I do, <laughs> unfortunately, I do have to wrap this discussion up. We could talk a, a long time about this. So, although, I like James's idea of locally sourced adultery, you know, that they should have the equivalent of farmer's markets where you really sort of get to know people. But um, the, uh, I will say that in the great tradition of blaming a victim, uh, Josh Duggar's mom uh, said the, that uh, she advises married women to have sex with their husband whenever he wants. Be available, the 49-year-old said in an interview last year. Anyone can fix him lunch, but only one person can meet that physical need of love that he has. You always need to be available when he calls because if you're not, he will register with Ashley Madison and you'll have even bigger problems. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with endorsements. Sign me up for Ashley Madison. Now I'm going to get all this bad publicity. Plus, what am I supposed to do about this email I got from Mariska Hargitay? I got an email from Mariska Hargitay? Can somebody else finish up these announcements for me? No? Today's show is produced by Colin and me, Kion Wolf. Betsy Kaplan appeared in the intro, and Alex Dubin is probably tweeting for us or something like that. The part of Bill Curry was played by blah, 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 and for articles and website, blah, blah. On Monday shows, something, something. Okay, I got to go. <laughs> All right, so so there's one happy ending there anyway. Maybe, maybe, who knows? Time for endorsements. Uh, so, uh, Irene Papoulos, what have you got for us? <clears throat> okay, well, I have to start with Kyone Wolf's um, a, a voice actress abilities. Um, but I, and also in the line of Rolling Stone, um, I have to endorse Matt Taibbi's article called "Inside the GOP Clown Car," which is about the um, the current Republican campaign, and it's just. It's kind of like it, all the astonishment that we feel about the fact that Trump hasn't gone away. Um, he kind of articulates and kind of explains in a really interesting way. The, the August 27th issue of Rolling Stone. All right. Teresa Kramer. Um, I would like to endorse the new Jason Isbell album, which is called Something More Than Free. And it's great. And if you got the last one, it's just as good, if not better. So listen to it. Um, also, I've been hesitating to actually endorse a podcast called Race Wars, but I'm going to do it because Alex Bloomberg of, uh, of NPR fame also came out pro-Race War podcast. And it's a couple of comedians and their friends and all sorts of people. Sometimes they bring in, you know, like they brought in the black Israelites and then had them fight with some sort of run-of-the-mill Jewish people about what it means to be Jewish. And they just have – sometimes it's a little repetitive. Sometimes it's a little too simple. But 
most of the time it's, you know, people having a very real conversation about race with people they're comfortable with, which you do not get anywhere else in this country, basically. All right. Good endorsement. Uh, what have you got for us, James? Um, I wanted to uh, endorse the Trinity Restaurant on Zion mm. Street, in our neighborhood restaurant near City Studio. Um, and uh, it's not run by Trinity. It's an independent restaurant, and the family who run it are great cooks. And they've just really – one of the remarkable things is it's a great place to go and eat, of course. It's very good food. But it's also had an amazing effect on the neighborhood. They've done beautiful restorations of their front area and uh, – They've uh, grown trees, so there's a nice place to eat outside. But it, the the one thing that's really amazing is that it's a great neighborhood hangout, a great place to go before you go to a movie or go to a theater somewhere. And uh, they really do a great job, and we're really happy they're in the neighborhood. Right there on Zion Street where Timothy's used to be. And are they still BYOB, or do they get no, a liquor they, license? No, they have a liquor, license, liquor license now. They have yeah. a bar now. Yeah, they so do, yeah. If you want to sit there with a couple of bottles of Cholula crying with Stephen Colbert, <laughs> uh, I couldn't think of a better place. All right, so um, I'm sort of not doing an endorsement exactly, I'm, uh, or at least I'm doing sort of a little bit of a hand-wringing endorsement. So uh, for many years, uh, Guitar Under the Stars has been one of the events that sort of really defines Hartford. I mean, it's sort of this thing down by the river. It's part of Riverfront Recapture. It's uh, co-produced by River front recapture and the guitarist Daniel Salazar, uh, and who's a Hartford area guy, although he's right from the border originally. I think I think uh, grew up in El Paso, Texas, uh, but he brings these incredible Spanish sounds uh, and works with other musicians. So for some reason or other. Um, the arts grants, what few there are that come out of the state through the Department of Economic Development and Tourism and whatever they're called now, are they're kind of screwed up or something. People are having trouble getting them. People who thought they were going to get them are not getting them. And that has happened to Daniel Salazar. So uh, he's like trying to rally public support right now uh, and uh, look for ways, for ways to cut costs and maybe get a few donations. I'd like to also just, you know, I don't know, Christina Newman Hartford Scott, she went over to this particular state commission. I'm kind of hoping she'll see the way. She, she of all people would know how incredibly valuable this event is to Hartford, how, much, how many people it attracts, and, and what a lovely stamp it puts on Hartford. It's scheduled for September 12th. I always seem to be scheduled for a night when I'm going to be somewhere else and I'm going to be at a wedding in New York that night, but, but I, I really think it would be a, a terrible loss to Hartford. So if there's ways that you can... All I can say to the state of Connecticut is uh, if you offend Salazar, you offend me, all right? So I'm, I meant that to sound threatening. I don't think it really came out that way. But, uh, um, but people really ought to help out with this. It really is a terrific event. And um, so if you can help uh, directly with a donation, that's great. But also let's put a little pressure on the state. He only he asked for $15,000. That's to kind of – pay them musicians and stuff like that, and it's not a huge grant, so uh, hopefully it can be done. I want to thank everybody who helped out with today's show. Wonderful panelists, as usual. Um, uh, Irene Papoulos from Trinity College, from The Cut, Teresa Kramer from wonderful Trinity Sydney Studio. Go there and see movies after you have your nice meal at uh, the Trinity Restaurant on Zion Street. Just go up the hill and see movies the way they're supposed to be shown on a beautiful screen, big screen, a curtain comes up beforehand the way it's supposed to, great sound equipment. So go to Trinity Cine Studio. It's the way to see a movie. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, 
One last question. You have to live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. Wait, wait, wait. Isn't that a quote from Rilke? Live the questions, I said. <laughs>